On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with our friend Aaron Pendergrass about the Mediatorial Office of Christ. We cover topics like what is it? What is the function of these offices? But what ways have contemporary Christianity narrowed the mediatorial office? Is it something that's temporary? Is it something that's eternal? How did Calvin think about this? And how did that influence successive thinkers on this topic? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can always hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at the LondonLyceum.com. We love to hear from our listeners. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate that is designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you to one of my new friends, Aaron Pendergrass. And we're going to be talking about the Enduring Mediatorial Office of Christ. So it, it's kind of a timely topic, I think, because I just saw a blog post uh, yesterday come out on Calvin's thoughts on his ro- on Christ's role as mediator and uh, making some comments about it potentially ending. So I don't remember exactly how me and Aaron got connected. I think it was actually through the podcast. We direct message somehow and we, we were just chatting and found out he did, uh, I think an MA thesis on this topic. He sent it over to me under uh, James Arcati, who we've had on the show, who's brilliant, awesome, cool guy. And uh, maybe we'll have him on in the future again to talk about something else. Um, we had him back on back when we were rookies at podcasting. So I think <laughs> the the, qual- the sound quality was, wasn't there for some reason. Um, so we've since figured all that kind of stuff out. Anyway, we were talking, he sent me this thesis and, and it was fascinating. So I thought this would be a great topic to talk about really fits well with the show. So I, I'm looking forward to doing that. Plus, I imagine most people don't know who Aaron is. And I think that's part of the fun uh, of the podcast is introducing our listeners to all sorts of people. Uh, we like to introduce, you know, our Baptist and confessional friends to analytic theology guys and vice versa. I like to introduce our analytic theology friends to our Baptist and confessional friends. And then I also like to have people who are well-known and people who no one know. So Aaron, I hope I didn't offend you by saying no one knows who you are, but <laughs> maybe you give us a little bit of background on who you are for those who may not be familiar with you. And then what made you become interested in this uh, topic of Christ as mediator? Yeah. So my name is Aaron Pendergrass. I grew up in Jackson, Tennessee, um, uh, near the Memphis side of the state, uh, went to Bryan College and uh, got a bachelor's of science in Christian ministry with a pastoral focus and a minor in biblical studies. And um, that's where I really whet my appetite for a love for theology before I came to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and got a, a Master of Arts in Systematic Theology. I am currently an associate pastor at Bethel Baptist Church in Greeley, Colorado. Um, and uh Part of my job is not only to assist the senior pastor in the day in and day out, but also to bring some um, uh, uh, cast some vision for the youth ministry as well. So I got a leg in the associate role and a leg in the youth ministry role, and I theologize on the side. Uh, while I was at TEDS, I wrote a thesis under my advisors, Dr. James Arcadi, and 
Dr. Manich on the Enduring Mediatorial Office of Christ and Calvin and the Reformed Tradition. I became interested in this topic after coming across Todd Billings' book, Union with Christ, uh, and realized that this was a discussion in Calvin studies, uh, particularly when you look at Book 2, Section 5, Chapter 15 of the Institutes, uh, the question becomes, uh, is Christ's uh, mediatorial office only um, for a time? And will that end uh, because uh, God will reign over us immediately rather than immediately? Or is this something that's enduring and that's eternal? And so first I uh, came across some of these contentious like debates and Calvin studies and uh First, I, I thought it was a temporary office, but the more I studied and looked at every single instance of the word mediator in Calvin's commentaries and the Institutes, uh, my mind changed as to what Calvin was really saying. Hmm. Well, Aaron, thanks uh, thanks again for giving us some time today. Why don't we just begin with um, what do we mean when we say the mediatorial office of Christ? What are we talking about when we say Christ is the mediator? Yeah, so uh, I think the first London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it really well. Um, I think it's uh, chapter 13 or section 13 on the first confession. This office to be the mediator, that is to be prophet, priest, and king of the church of God is so proper to Christ uh, that neither in whole nor in any part can it be transferred from him to any other. And it's a threefold office. This number and order of offices is necessary for in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of Christ's prophetical office. In respect of our great alienation from God, we need his priestly office to reconcile us. And in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Uh, what you'll see in some literature is uh, you read about the mediatory office of Christ. This is also known as the munis triplex. Uh, that's the Latin phrase for the threefold office. Uh, uh, where Christ reigns and rules and operates as a prophet, priest, and king on our behalf. Good stuff. So you, you mentioned these, these I guess, I don't know if they're titles or functions or, or what's the proper term for them, the prophet, priest, and king that you mentioned. What What functions do those actually do? And are there any other, I guess, offices uh, that are, are subsumed under the mediatory role of Christ? Yeah, so it, it's a debate within um, the conversation whether the Munis Triplex is a uh, threefold office or if they're actually three separate offices. Um, and uh, it looks like in the Baptist confessions, they've uh, come to eventually believe that that office was a threefold office. And in my thesis, I argue for at least five different functions within that mediatorial office, uh, but the prophet, priest, king, um, offices are all subsets of those functions. So you can find all of those functions under the prophetic and the priestly and the kingly offices. Um, okay. So, so would they share? So some of those, I guess, functions would be shared between the offices. So, like prophet priest could do the same function, uh, or, or am I misunderstanding? Yeah. So uh, I think you could say that. Uh, uh, the intercessory function of Christ, uh, for example, is something that's under his uh, uh, priesthood. Yeah. Uh, and we could say that the incarnation is something that's under his priesthood. And uh, we could say that uh, the prophetic function, like um, uh, 
we see in chapter eight of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, I think it's actually in uh, section six of chapter eight. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, uh, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices where he was revealed and signified to be the seed. So we see that although um, Christ did not become a priest yet until the incarnation, uh, we see the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, saying that uh, uh, through Christ's prophetic ministry, he was communicating himself as a priest that was to come, even though he had not yet became a priest. So obviously the the categories of uh, prophet, priest, and king are, are biblical categories. You know, those are words that we see used in Scripture um, but as far as being used in this way and and together, um, as far as the threefold office, do do you know how that developed throughout the Christian tradition until we get to um, the Reformation? Or so, so I guess my question is, um, was it spoken of that way throughout the history of the church, or um, does that language of prophet, priest, and king being um, I guess a summary of the mediatorial office is that a strictly um, reformational um, wording? Yeah. So we do see in the writings of Augustine and Aquinas, uh, 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 this aspect of Christ's mediatorial office, um, particularly being a prophet and being a king, but we don't see anybody uh, really putting all three of these offices together until the Reformation, particularly when we get to John Calvin. He's the one that popularizes this motif of prophet, priest, and king, and um, it catches fire and continues to carry on within the theological writings in the Reformation and post-Reformation era after Calvin's influence. Uh, but what I've seen from the writings of Augustine and Aquinas that have hinted at it, uh, I don't see this munis triplex idea happening until the Reformation period. Okay, well, since, since you mentioned Calvin, I guess we can um, let, let's talk about him for a minute. So, what what is his specific contribution and um, in in this discussion? You know, I guess he's drawing a little bit on uh, Augustine and Aquinas since they had used two of the three uh, together. But what's his unique uh, contribution? Yeah. And, and can you speak to the, the question that I, I saw, I guess, come across in this blog today or yesterday about Cal, Calvin saying that Christ, I guess, stops being mediator? And you, you shot me over another article by Stephen Wedgworth that basically says the same thing. And I looked it up in his institutes in book two, chapter 14, section three. And he, he does say we shall, uh, I guess Christ having then discharged the office of mediator. So tell, I guess, yeah, tell us what Calvin's thinking. And, and especially I'm curious about what he means by discharging the office. Yeah. So we see that uh, Calvin's mediatorial theology uh, really starts to become formed under a time of theological necessity. Uh, there was this one um, heterodox theologian by the name of Francesco Stencaro uh, that had come across uh, uh, Calvin and uh, had eventually become a professor uh, in uh, a few of the neighboring countries that Calvin was in. And he looked at the first Timothy chapter two, verse five, 
uh, passage that says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he started to argue that the mediatorial office was only something unique to Jesus's humanity and that only the man part of Jesus was a mediator. Um, Ossiander, which uh, was a, a Lutheran theologian and friends with Philip Melanchthon, had uh, started debating against Francesco Stencaro and uh, started arguing that Christ was a mediator according to the divine nature. Uh, Calvin uh, saw a lot of this going on and felt like he needed to intervene. And so he writes against Francesco Stencaro in a document uh, pertaining to the true partaking of the flesh and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, where he argues for a real presence view of the Lord's Supper rather than a corporeal like eating view. But he uh, talks about the necessity of Jesus having to be a mediator according to the divine and the human nature. And he says to Francesco Stencaro, you're wrong that Jesus became a mediator because Jesus was a mediator uh, even in the Old Testament, and uh, he's a mediator over the angels. So Calvin starts to formulate this idea of Christ being a cosmic mediator and uh, makes a distinction between creator and creature and says that uh, Christ is um, uh, not uh, a creature and uh, Christ wouldn't be a properly fit mediator unless he was the creator also. And uh, in my thesis, I start to argue that Calvin had five different functions in mind for the office of the mediator. It's this idea of being a cosmic mediator. And uh, Calvin points to Colossians 1, uh, for by uh, uh, Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers and authorities. And he points to Hebrews 1, and we see it throughout the rest of his writings where he thinks that the angel of the Lord is a Christophany or is Jesus in the Old Testament. And that's highly contested. But uh, Calvin believes that uh, that Christ essentially mediated the law uh, because of that Galatians 4 passage where the law was given through the hand of an intermediary or a mediator um, and says that Christ as the angel of the Lord is mediating uh, the law to people and communicating that those types. Uh, and then he says that Christ uh, uh, takes on human nature and that uh, uh, the mediatorial office is not something that's just unique to the divine nature. And it's not something that's just unique to the human nature. Uh, but Christ acts according to both of those natures as a mediator. So Christ uh, uh, came to fulfill this office of a uh, mediator because of this reconciliation function. So Calvin distinguishes between a cosmic mediation, a mediation of revelation, a uh, mediation of reconciliation where Christ uh, fills the gap that was between God and man. And uh, he, re he, he pulls us back to God. Uh, there's this idea of the mediation of intercession where after the ascension Christ goes into the heavenly places and he intercedes for us on our behalf and he's mediating for us in that sense. And uh, I, I started seeing uh, within uh, Calvin and uh, within some of the writings of Stephen Edmondson and as I was studying other uh, theologians after Calvin, particularly Thomas Goodwin and Herman Bovink, they talk about this idea of the mediatorship of union. And uh, when I started looking at Calvin's writings, uh, we don't see that kind of language appearing, but we do see Calvin being insistent that the mediator needs to be grounded in the person of Christ rather than just one of the natures. 
And uh, we see this idea implicitly and people after Calvin explicitly developed this idea that the hypostatic union itself is an act of mediation. And uh, if Christ was ever to um, forsake that hypostatic union or discharge the office of mediator would be in one sense to discharge his flesh and uh, he would become unincarnate and no longer be a mediator if he didn't have that hypostatic union in that sense. That's interesting. So, is it just that there's different ways to understand mediator? Like there's a broader way of understanding it uh, of the term or a narrower understanding of the term. And that might cause some of the confusion between temporary versus eternal mediating. Yeah. So um, as I started reading Calvin, uh, how I make sense of that section is the, in the institutes was I came across something in his sermons on uh, Matthew uh, where he talks about Christ uh, acquitting himself of the duty of the mediator. Um, I have it right uh, here. He says in uh, uh, in a, his uh, sermon on Matthew 27, uh, we need to understand uh, in what ways uh, uh, Christ has uh, achieved uh, the sacrifice for us and uh, where he acquits himself of the duty of the mediator when he says that it's finished on the cross. And I was like, wait a minute. And then I look at the chapter before that and Calvin says, let us understand the way that Christ is our mediator today. And I thought, huh? So Calvin has in mind uh, uh, a sense where Christ acquits himself of the duty of the mediator when he talks about it is finished, but he has another sense where he's talking about Christ being a uh, mediator uh, perpetually and uh, how I understood Calvin there and what sense was Christ acquitting the office of mediator as he was talking about that Christ inaugurated that reconciliation on the cross and uh, kick-started that. And uh, that's when our sins were paid for on the cross, but all of creation shall eventually be reconciled one day. Uh, and that's that. That's how I made sense of uh, this section as in the Institutes, as I saw Calvin saying that um, uh, the knowledge of God that we have accommodated to us uh, uh, this is a motif that we see in John Calvin, that uh, the ontological gap between creator and creature is so big that the only way God can communicate knowledge to us is if he stoops to our level and he lisps to us like uh, children is the way that Calvin describes yeah. it. And uh, he sees that uh, uh, the, the, that uh, accommodation will cease in the new creation and that that epistemological function that Christ will no longer need to mediate revelation to us because we'll be with God in his fullness and we'll see him face to face. And uh, there will be no more need for uh, Christ to reconcile us because we'll already be reconciled. It's not like Christ is still reconciling us in the new creation or uh, Christ is still interceding for us when we're there with him in his presence. So I understand Calvin to say that the priestly functions and the uh, epistemological functions ceasing in the new creation. So as you're talking about this, I'm wondering, you know, we've we've had different guests on the show in the past. You've talked a little bit about this idea of incarnation anyway, where God had a plan uh like prior, logically prior in whatever way um, to the fall to say, I was going to send my son to become incarnate, whether or not sin actually happened. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's the case, 
it seems like we would we the mediatorial office would have to be eternal and not contingent upon you know reconciling us uh, from our sins or whatever like or something like that. Do you think that might have any impact on this? If if we take incarnation anyway as a legitimate true category, yeah. So there's a uh, two things there. Um, in uh, Calvin's commentary on uh, Genesis, where he sees uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 18, and I think it's also in um, Exodus 28:42, we see Calvin referring to Christ as uh, an eternal mediator and as a perpetual mediator. So we could very well say that this is an inconsistency in Calvin's theology with the Institutes, and he later changed his mind about something, or he's referring to a different kind of function is what I argue. But with the issue of the incarnation anyway, this gets into infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. And uh, uh, this essentially is a conversation about the decrees and about if uh, Christ has to become incarnate because of the decree. Uh, or if um, uh, Christ becomes incarnate after uh, a creation uh, and this this kind of rescue plan that has to take place afterwards. But uh, there's this idea within the Reformed tradition known as the covenant of redemption. And uh, this was a conversation uh, where uh, we see um, uh, that this starts with Calvin's successor. Um, i trying to remember his, his name. Uh, well, Calvin's successor. Theodore Beza? Theodore Beza, yes. So we see that uh, he translates uh, this passage in Luke, um, the word diotheke in Greek. He translates uh, uh, the word uh, covenanted, uh, which is what it it literally means, uh, as the Father is assigned or appointed or covenanted a kingdom with me, so I covenant a kingdom with you. And uh, we see this start to take off within the Reformed tradition where – uh, a lot of the post-reformers were saying that this installation to the office of mediator was something that was pre-temporal and uh, something that happened uh, because of the divine decree and because uh, God elected Christ to be the mediator before the foundation of the world. Uh, uh, we see that uh, this is something that has to take place. And and sometimes in Calvin's logic, we see this idea of the incarnation anyway, where uh uh, Calvin says, man still would have been too lowly to reach God without a mediator, even in his yeah. unfallen state. But a few chapters after that, he critiques Osiander for speculating that an incarnation would have to take place without a sacrifice. Uh, uh, which which just leads to more questions uh, when you're like, okay, is this is this vain speculation, or do you actually think that the gap needs to be bridged because of the incarnation? Yeah, man, that's one of the things with Calvin. I, I, you know, I love him. He was like, you know, my one of my first real like big reform systematic theology guys that I read. But uh, there is a sense where he's like really vague about that vain speculation type piece, where it's um, he almost uses it when he's not sure what to say or how to respond. You know, just put out the charge. So this is vain speculation, and that'll that'll resolve the worry. But <laughs> so I want I want to be sure I'm 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 tracking along here. So in Calvin's thought, and I could be totally misunderstanding. So so in a new creation, Christ no longer is mediator in the priestly and the prophetic functions, but he is in the kingly function. Is that correct? 
Yeah. So what I'm seeing in, in Calvin is that Christ is still a cosmic mediator or some kind of kingly function. Uh, okay. Just as he sustains the first creation, he's sustaining the new creation. Uh, yeah. and, and I also see within Calvin the hypostatic union continuing. And uh, some uh, after Calvin and the Reformed tradition have said that uh, Christ still continues to wear the robes of his priesthood. Uh even uh, though um, these uh, priestly activities have ceased because uh, in the New Jerusalem, we see that Jesus Christ himself is the temple. And I think the way that John Owen describes it is he says that tabernacle of Christ's flesh shall never fold away. So I, I do want to get to talking about the first and second London confession here in a little bit, because uh, we don't, it seems like depending on the episode, we, we don't always have the opportunity to engage someone deeply on this. And I think you've thought about it a lot and, you know, we're obviously second London guys. So it's, it's a lot of fun to do that. But before we get there, I, I wanted to make sure we discuss this question, um, thinking about the ways that contemporary Christianity narrows the mediatorial office. Mm-hmm. Uh, what ways do they do that? Where do you see that? And why did, why do you see that? You don't have to answer all those in order or anything, but mm-hmm. I'm just curious about that, that question. Yeah. So I think the way uh, that we see uh, Christ's mediatorial office narrowed within contemporary Christianity is particularly uh, limited to the priestly function or, or uh, atonement and expiation. So we see uh, Christ uh, dying for us and paying the price for our redemption. But it seems like people forget that Jesus is still in heaven interceding on our behalf. And we have neglected the doctrine of the ascension. And uh, we also uh, don't think about Christ still continuing to guide us by his word and by his spirit through his prophetic office. Um, and we see some in the Reformed tradition afterwards developing this idea, saying that the mediator is the one that has called uh, pastors and feeds his sheep through the proclamation of the word. And Christ is teaching his people through the pastors and through the preachers that he's appointed. Um William Shedd in his dogmatic theology uh, essentially talks about preaching being a, a teaching function of the prophetic office of Christ. Uh, and he goes to passages in uh, Ephesians 2, Christ came and preached to you who were far off and to you who were near uh, and says, look, we see that uh, Christ is preaching to the Gentiles through the ministry of the apostles and through the ministry of teachers that he's installed. And uh we see Paul in 1 Corinthians rebuking the Corinthians and saying, this is not the things that you have learned from Christ when he rebukes them for their sexual morality in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. And we see in Acts chapter 13, I believe, where um, uh, Paul is uh, casting out a, a demon uh, out of this one guy. And uh, this guy hears the message that Paul says, and he learned about the teaching of the Lord. And William Shedd goes, huh? So we see that the teaching of the Lord is something that is uh, communicated through uh, the medium of the apostles and the prophets. And that when we go to church and we listen to sermons, we need to be paying attention and hearing from Christ and making sure Christ is speaking to us. And uh, Christ is still continuing that kind of prophetic function. Um, and we don't really think about the continuing uh, humanity of Christ in cr- contemporary Christianity, that Christ is still the God man. I, I know that many people uh, just they don't they don't give reflection on the idea that Jesus was was a human. Like you 
I, I went up and talked to a friend of mine recently and was just like, isn't it wonderful that Christ is still the God man and he, he's chosen to be that for all eternity. And, uh, she wasn't a heretic. She was a Southern Baptist. And she was like, wait, you're still a man? Like, I thought that that was. And I was like, yes, Jesus is still a man. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think I don't think a lot of our our folks have, have thought through these issues. And I, I, I've heard people say similar things, you know, just kind of surprised um, that, you know, and I think you're right that we don't, we, there's been a lack of teaching on the Ascension. So that's probably connected to, um, you know, the lack of focus on the the Ascension. So that's probably why people don't think about Christ uh, still being the God man. But uh, I do want to maybe transition to what the Baptist uh, confessions teach us about this mediatorial uh, office of Christ, specifically the uh, first London confession in 1644 and the 1689. Um, so maybe just walk us through um, those two, what the, those two confessions say. And, and is there any, uh, is there any change or development between the first London confession and the second? Yeah. So we see in uh, the 1644 confession, uh, I think it's a uh, statement 10. Jesus Christ has made the mediator of the new and everlasting covenant of grace between God and man ever to be perfectly and fully the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God forevermore. Uh, we don't see that kind of statement in the 1689 that uh, this idea of the prophet, priestly, and kingly functions uh, continue for all eternity. We just uh, read um, about mainly the priestly office really emphasized in a uh, uh, chapter eight, section two through four. Uh, so I found it interesting that the 1644 really emphasizes the, uh, con- uh, the continuing prophetic priestly and kingly functions, uh, rather than just the eternal priesthood. Um, I found that really interesting. Uh, it, it communicates this idea of an eternal, uh, munis triplex. Uh, we see, um, in, uh, 15 and 16 of the 1644, uh, compared to statement six of chapter eight of the 1689, we see that um, the prophetic office is um, uh, that they have the statement in the 1644 that uh, uh, Christ is the angel of the covenant, but we don't see this angel of the Lord terminology being communicated uh, uh, Christ's pr- prophetic office in the 1689 confession. Uh, so, we see that, and we see again in um, 17 and 18 of 1644 that uh, uh, Christ's priesthood, um, I think it's in statement 17 and 18, uh, was not legal or temporary, but it's, uh, uh, and it's not for a time, for, uh, but it's, it's forever, and it's suitable to Jesus Christ. So in one sense, Christ's priesthood, or um, I would say his hypostatic union, uh, is uh, enduring, and it, it remains forever. And we don't really see that in the 1689, uh, but we uh, do see uh, ways the 1689 clarifies some things that the 1644 had not clarified. Like in Statement 19 of the 1644, it says that uh, uh, concerning Christ's uh, kingly office, he applies the fruits of his prophecy and his priesthood to the elect. But we see in Chapter 8, Section 8, we see these offices distinguished a little more we see that uh, uh, Christ is um, uh, act, like it just says that we stand in need of his prophetic office because of these reasons and the need of his priestly office because of these reasons and the need of his kingly office. So we don't see uh, 
this idea of um, teaching and priesthood being lumped under kinghood like we do in uh, 1644. Uh, but we also see a statement 10, chapter 8 of the 1689. It adds this statement that looks like a copy-paste of, um, of uh, where was it? It's a, it's a copy-paste of uh, the statement about this number and order of offices as necessary uh, for Christ. I think it's statement 14 uh, in the 1644, it puts that as the, at the, as the last thing on the statement of the mediator, but that's one of the first things on the 1644, but it adds the statement on the uh, priestly office, uh, and imperfection of our best services. So we stand in need of Christ's priestly office in respect of alienation from God and imperfection of our best services. We need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable to God. But we don't see that clause in the 1644. So we see that there's mm. an addition there. And, but we see this idea of the covenant of redemption in both the 1644 and 1689, where uh, Christ was appointed to this office by God from everlasting uh, I think it's in statement uh, 11 and statement 10 of the 1644. Uh, he's the mediator of the new and everlasting covenant of grace. And uh, God has called him to this office with a special promise. He ordains his son to this office. And then uh, statement one of uh, 1689, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus according to the covenant made between them both to be the mediator. So we see this idea of the covenant of redemption continuing on and the 1689 confession. But it looks like in some ways the first London confession emphasizes more about the mediatorial office of Christ that the 1689 really condenses to the priesthood. And it clarifies some things that were unclarified in the 1644. That's interesting. You know, we uh, we talked with James Renahan a few weeks ago and that, that episode will drop at some point. Um, so whenever you're, whoever's listening to this, it's, it's available now, so you can go check it out. But at this point, it's not when we're recording. He pretty much argues that there's no, I guess, substantial difference between these two confessions, um, that they are, I guess, substantially the same, even if the phrasing and is expanded or contracted or changed. But it is interesting to your point that the 1644 is very clear that these offices are forevermore. But then when I look in chapter eight of the 1689, it is difficult to see a clear statement on that. And maybe that's just, it has to do with, you know, they're wanting to, for the most part, follow Westminster and Savoy and, or, or however you say that last one, I always, I, all these things, all these words, I hear other people say them and I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm saying it right. This other person says it this way, but you know, I'll say it how I want to. So I guess we'll go with that. You know, I got called out by um, Andrew Hollingsworth in a very gentle and kind way for <laughs> calling um, Pannenberg Pannenberg. So <laughs> I, I pronounce things wrong all the time. But maybe, you know, I'm looking here at Chapter 8 uh, in 1689. Uh, and I know all of our listeners aren't, you know, 1689 junkies or something. That's fine. Go look at it yourself. I think this is interesting for the topic of Crisis Mediator. Um, it. I don't see any explicit statement that it's it's um, eternal. Even in, in chapter 8, section 10, it's when it's talking about the order of the offices and how they're necessary, it gives them saying, you know, the prophetical office is necessary because of our ignorance. Uh, the priestly office is necessary because of our alienation and imperfection. And the 
kingly office is necessary, I guess, for our rescue and for our un, in, utter inability to return to God. I'm, and I'm thinking all of these things seem to be completed and fulfilled through the work, earthly work of Christ. So if I were just to look at that, it would seem like why would Christ still need to be a mediator uh, post-death, resurrection, ascension? Uh, if I just look at that, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, I, I think you're thinking about that right. Yeah, I, I, I do see that 1689 has dropped some things out. Um, and that, that goes into a little bit of uh, the development of and Calvin's influence after um, Calvin with in regards to this doctrine. Uh, I think in chapter four of my thesis, I look at the mediation theologies of Isaac Ambrose, um, uh, Thomas Goodwin, Francis Turretin, uh, Herman Bovink, uh, um, Abraham Kuyper, and Jonathan Edwards and John Owen. And I see some continuities and discontinuities with uh, some things that Calvinists propose. Like we see with Abraham Kuyper and with Isaac Ambrose in particular, they say that the mediatorial office will um, uh, cease uh, and that it only had a beginning in time with uh, the incarnation. But they do see the, uh, that Christ was uh, appointed to this role pretemporally, but we don't see this uh, prophetic and this kingly office uh, happening. Um, Abraham Kuyper uh, says that the beatific vision will be one where we see the divine essence uh, completely. Uh, so we won't need to have uh, Christ uh, stand in for us as an intermediary to, to keep us from seeing that vision. But we see with uh, Francis Turretin, he's like, hold on a second. Um, uh, Christ is going to still be communicating knowledge to us because it says in the New Jerusalem that uh, he will continue to illuminate the saints because he is the light of that temple. Uh, and uh, we also see him saying that uh, the administration of the kingly function will change, although the uh, uh, it, it will look different. It's not going to be like this first administration, but the second administration uh as still testifies to the fact that Christ is still a king in some sense, and he still uh, has his flesh uh, for all eternity. And we see that same thing with um, Jonathan Edwards, as he says, uh, the beatific vision is experienced by those in the intermediate state that go to be with Christ in one way. But uh, after the resurrection, when they have their bodies, they have a more heightened sense of that beatific vision. And John Owen says that Christ's flesh does not uh, ever fold up, but we're only going to be able to see God in and through the face of Jesus Christ. And that uh, Christ's uh, resurrected body is going to enable our resurrected bodies to be able to see God and to see the glory that he had with him before the world began. And Herman Bovink and Thomas Goodwin talk about this idea of the mediator of union, and that although the mediation of reconciliation shall be finished, there will always be a mediation of union unless we want to say that Christ will discharge his flesh and become unincarnate. And uh, these are just things that I don't think were developed by everybody within the Reformed yeah. tradition. We see some people diverging and making their own mediatorial office theologies. Um, same thing with William Shedd. We see that uh, he says in his dogmatic theology, the mediatorial office begins at a particular point of time. And since it's temporal, it, it has to end at a particular point in time. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I got to say, I don't have like a chapter and verse <laughs> that is like coming to mind here that's telling me exactly what I think on this, but I have an intuition to agree that there has to be a mediation of union. Uh, and that's why like, I would never, like, even if these, some of these other offices did fulfill their functions and ultimately get to their end, achieve their end, I, I can't imagine or understand how someone could say that Christ stopped being mediator in any sense, because that seems like you are ultimately reducing or destroying the creator creature distinction in some Mm way. Um, It seems like just from that fact that they're creator creature distinction, I should have to say I need a mediator. Even if I don't sin, I need one. Uh, I, I need somebody that can give me, like, connect me, unite me to the fullness that is God. Is I guess, is that what some guys ha- have touched on with this mediation of union? That That's why they're saying that there's this enduring office. Uh, that is that the primary piece? Or, or maybe are there others that are actually saying priestly, kingly, prophetic, they also are eternal? Yeah, so I haven't seen anybody arguing that uh, reconciliation is going to uh, keep happening in the new creation, uh, because that's just really strange and very problematic theologically. Unless you're a dispensationalist, right? It would at least continue in the like millennium. <laughs> right, right. This idea of animal sacrifices. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I, that was a low blow, probably, but you know, I don't. <laughs> I don't think we have a lot of dispensational listeners. <laughs> so I'll take the shot. <laughs> they, they, you could shoot me a Twitter message if you got offended. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, where we see people really um, attacking um, Calvin's uh, theology of uh, mediation is begins, I think, with um, Heinrich Quistorp and Jürgen Moltmann and a Dutch Reformed theologian named A.A. von Ruler. Moltmann says that Calvin only has a functional... Oh, and Edwin Van Drill. Uh, uh, Moltmann says that Calvin has a functional uh, mediatorial theology and that uh, uh, like only that Christ only becomes a mediator in order to rescue us. And he sets out on this divine rescue mission. And once we're reconciled with God... Uh, uh, there's not going to be a need for it anymore. And he's going to discharge the office of mediator. And Moltmann interprets that to mean Christ will discharge his flesh because he looks at this very strange statement in 1 Corinthians 15, Calvin's commentaries, uh, I think 24, 28, where it talks about the, the flesh as a veil and uh, it, it keeps us from seeing the divine essence and that the veil of Christ's flesh shall be lifted and he'll transfer everything from his human nature to the divine nature uh, so that uh, God will reign immediately and we'll be able to see God face to face. Now, I don't know exactly what's going on there other than a strong view of what uh, people have called the extra Calvinisticum. Um, it, it, it's weird. But I don't think when I look at the rest of Calvin's writings, particularly his commentaries in Genesis and Exodus and uh, that sermon on Matthew 27, I do think he has different mediatorial functions in mind. And he sees the mediatorial office as something that's eternal and something that's perpetual, whatever we're we're understanding going on there. Um, But we also see A.A. Von Ruler. He uses Calvin's logic to say, look, uh, uh, like, Christ uh, uh, 
essentially will discharge his flesh and will be one with God. And he uses Marcellus of Ancyra's like logic there to, to make those jumps. And I think that's something that Herman Bovink saw uh, when he was dialoguing with his contemporary Abraham Kuyper. And he's like, no, the mediation of reconciliation will finish, but the mediation of union won't. Uh, so I'm not seeing anybody argue about a continuing uh, intercession or priestly function, but I'm seeing people like, um, what was his name? He just wrote a, a book on, uh, uh, meta- oh, uh, he teaches at a Grand Canyon. Oh, yeah. I, the, the, name, the name slips me. What, what was the topic? Maybe. Uh, yeah, Doobie, Stephen Doobie. Okay, Stephen. Yeah, so Stephen Doobie says that uh, this is uh, something that needs to really be a conversation that keeps going is this idea of the uh, mediation still happening within the, the new creation. Um, and uh, Edwin Van Drill is just essentially critiquing Calvin's theologies and how he's making sense of those statements is he thinks there's competing eschatologies within Calvin that a Calvin uh, has infralapsarian eschatology at certain points when he talks about mediatorship, and then he has superlapsarian eschatologies happening, and he never fully settles his mind somewhere. Makes sense. Brandon, was there anything else you wanted to really uh, ask or touch on? No, I don't think so. Okay, so maybe, Aaron, you, you just give us your top three resources on this topic mm. uh, for let's say uh, a pastor who is wanting to figure out how do I apply this to, to my local church and my preaching and maybe to someone who's a student who just like wants to intellectually uh, enjoy the mediatorial office of Christ. Well, I would say J.V. Fesco's uh, book, The Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption, is a good source for laymen to understand this idea of the Covenant of Redemption, but a more academic source would be the Covenant of Redemption, Origins, Development, and Reception, to see uh, how in 16th and 17th century English theology, uh, the Covenant of Redemption was used to describe the installation of Christ's office as mediator, primordially. Um, Practically, I would say... uh, Benjamin Glad's From Adam to Israel to the Church, A Biblical Theology of the People of God. He goes through a few chapters talking about how Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, and how the church become uh, types of uh, under-mediators or prophet, priests, and kings to the world in a particular sense. And Richard Belcher has written a book called Prophet, Priest, and King, The Roles of Christ in the Bible and Our Roles Today. Um, for a biblical theology perspective, Andrew Malone has written a book called God's Mediators, a Biblical Theology of Priesthood. And that's in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series edited by D.A. Carson. Um, and I know that uh, Patrick Schreiner has written a book uh, that I haven't read yet on the Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected Doctrine. Uh, but I see Gavin Ortland's reviews talking about he does a really good job unpacking the prophetic, priestly and kingly roles of Christ in that book. Cool, man. That's awesome. So uh, for those who want to follow along with anything uh, that you're doing to see if you're trying to write or publish, or maybe you're just, you know, wanting or, you know, plodding along in a, in a local church or something like that, wh- whatever you're doing, they want to keep up. Do you have a place they can get, can do that? Do you have social media? Do you have a website? Yeah. So I have a Twitter and my Twitter handle is W a Pendergrass. 
so I, I'm pretty active on there. I share a lot of like quotes and stuff, uh, uh, occasionally. I also have an academia.edu page. Uh, you can look up Aaron Pendergrass. Uh, my thesis is available for access on there as well as on awesome. ProQuest. And I hope to be uploading a few more drafts of some articles that I'm wanting to write in the Calvin Theological Journal soon that will be on there before the fully ones are published. Fantastic. That is, that is, that is really good. Looking forward to that. I know uh, going through your thesis is probably one of the most well-researched and written MA thesis as I've ever read. Uh, had I written a, uh, an MA thesis, I, it would have been w- much dumber than what you did. So <laughs> I don't know if that's you being smart or if that's just uh, James Arcadi being really smart, but either way, you guys did a fantastic job with that. Yeah. I want to give a shout out to Scott Manich too, because he is a prodigious Calvin scholar, and I don't think I would have been able to uh, see some of the issues that were happening in Calvin studies if it wasn't for him and him forcing me to be articulate as well. Oh, that's good, man. Yeah, the, the Calvin area is is a, is a tough one because I think everybody who's like semi-reformed at least loves to go to Calvin, but he's got so much stuff out there and they read like little sections of it and it's hard to know all the ins and outs when you've only read, you know, a couple sections of his stuff. So uh, that's good. Anyway, um, we want to thank you for coming on the show. I think this was really, really helpful. I think this was really interesting. I think this is a topic that is, uh, I guess, pastorally nourishing as well as intellectually nourishing and is one that should continue on. So I'm looking forward to the stuff that you continue to do on this. I hope you continue to do it. And uh, I imagine our listeners enjoyed it as well. So we encourage them to check out your stuff. So for all you guys and girls and everybody who've been in between who've been listening to the podcast, Uh, We want to remind you that this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.